Chapter Three, Part One of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Three, Part One last stage of education and first of self-education for the first year or two after my visit to france i continued my old studies with the addition of some new ones when i returned my father was just finishing for the press his elements of political economy and he made me perform an exercise on the manuscript which mr bentham practised on all his own writings making what he called marginal contents a short abstract of every paragraph to enable the writer more easily to judge of and improve the order of the ideas and the general character of the exposition soon after my father put into my hands condillac's traite de sensations and the logical and metaphysical volumes of his hors d'etudes the first notwithstanding the superficial resemblance between condillac's psychological system and my father's quite as much for a warning as for an example i am not sure whether it was in this winter or the next that i first read the history of the french revolution i learnt with astonishment that the principles of democracy were apparently in no insignificant and hopeless a minority everywhere in europe had borne all before them in france thirty years earlier and had been the creed of the nation as may be supposed from this i had previously a very vague idea of that great commotion i knew only that the french had thrown off the absolute monarchy of louis the fourteenth and fifteenth had put the king and queen to death guillotined many persons one of whom was lavoisier and had ultimately fallen under the despotism of Bonaparte. From this time, as was natural, the subject took an immense hold on my feelings. It allied itself with all my juvenile aspirations to the character of a democratic champion. What had happened so lately seemed as if it might easily happen again, and the most transcendent glory I was capable of conceiving was that of figuring successfully or unsuccessfully, as a Giordanist in an English convention. During the winter of 1821-2, Mr. John Austin, with whom at the time of my visit to France my father had but lately become acquainted, kindly allowed me to read Roman law with him. My father, notwithstanding his abhorrence of the chaos of barbarianism called English law, had turned his thoughts toward the bar as on the whole less inequitable for me, than any other profession and these readings with mr austin who had made bentham's best ideas his own and added much to them from other sources and from his own mind were not only a valuable introduction to legal studies but an important portion of general education with mr austin i read anasius on the institutes his roman antiquities and part of his exposition of the pandists to whom was added a considerable portion of blackstone it was at the commencement of these studies that my father as a needful accompaniment to them put into my hands bentham's principal speculations 
as interpreted to the continent, and indeed to all the world, by Dumont. In the Trace de Legislation, the reading of this book was an epoch in my life, one of the turning points in my mental history. My previous education had been, in a certain sense, already a course of Benthamism. The Benthamic standard of the greatest happiness was that which I had always been taught to apply. I was even familiar with an abstract discussion of it, forming an episode in an unpublished dialogue on government, written by my father on the Platonic model. Yet in the first pages of Bentham it burst upon me with all the force of novelty. What thus impressed me was the chapter in which Bentham passed judgment on the common modes of reasoning in morals and legislation, deduced from phrases like law of nature, right reason, the moral sense, natural recitative, and the like, and characterized them as dogmatism in disguise, imposing its sentiments on others under cover of sounding expressions which convey no reason for the sentiment, but set up the sentiment as its own reason. It had not struck me before that Bentham's principle put an end to all this. The feeling rushed upon me that all previous moralists were superseded, and that there indeed was the commencement of a new era in thought. This impression was strengthened by the manner in which Bentham put into scientific form the application of the happiness principle to the morality of actions, by analyzing the various classes and orders of their consequences. But what struck me at the time most of all was the classification of offenses, which is much more clear, compact, and imposing in Dumont's redaction than in the original work of Bentham from which it was taken. Logic and the dialectics of Plato, which had formed so large a part of my previous training, had given me a strong relish for accurate classification. This taste had been strengthened and enlightened by the study of botany on the principles of what is called the natural method, which I had taken up with great zeal, though only as an amusement, during my stay in France, and when I found scientific classification applied to the great and complex subject of punishable acts under the guidance of the ethical principle of pleasurable and painful consequences, followed out in the method of detail introduced into these subjects by Bentham, I felt taken up to an eminence from which I could survey a vast mental domain and see stretching out into the distance intellectual results beyond all computation. As I proceeded further, there seemed to be added to this intellectual clearness the most inspiring prospects of practical improvement in human affairs. To Bentham's general view of the construction of a body of law, I was not altogether a stranger, having read with attention that admirable compendium, my father's article on jurisprudence, but I had read it with little profit and scarcely any interest, no doubt from its extremely general and abstract character, and also because it concerned the form more than the substance of the corpus juris, the logic rather than the ethics of law. But Bentham's subject was legislation, of which jurisprudence is only the formal part, and at every part he seemed to open a clearer and broader conception of what human opinions and institutions ought to be, how they might be made 
what they ought to be, and how far removed from it they are now. When I laid down the last volume of the Traité, I had become a different being. The principle of utility, understood as Bentham understood it, and applied it in the manner in which he applied it, through these three volumes, fell exactly into its place through the keystone which held together the detached and fragmentary component parts of my knowledge and beliefs. It gave utility to my conceptions of things. I now had opinions, a creed, a doctrine, a philosophy. In one among the best senses of the word, a religion. The inculcation and diffusion of which could be made the principal outward purpose of a life. And I had a grand conception laid before me of changes to be effected in the condition of mankind through that doctrine. The Traité de Legislation wound up with what was to me a most impressive picture of human life, as it would be made by such opinions and such laws as were recommended in the treatise. The anticipations of practicable improvement were studiously moderate, depreciating and discountenancing as reveries of vague enthusiasm many things which will one day seem so natural to human beings that injustice will probably be done to those who once thought them chimerical. But in my state of mind, the appearance of superiority to illusion added to the effect which Bentham's doctrine produced in me, by heightening the impression of mental power and the vista of improvement which he did open was sufficiently large and brilliant to light up my life, as well as to give a definite shape to my aspirations. After this I read, from time to time, the most important of the other works of Bentham, which had then seen the light, either as written by himself or as edited by Dumont. This was my private reading, while under my father's direction my studies were carried into the higher branches of analytical psychology. I now read Locke's essay, and wrote out an account of it, consisting of a complete abstract of every chapter, with such remarks as occurred to me, which was read by, or I think, to, my father, and discussed throughout. I performed the same process with Leviticus de l'Esprit, which I read of my own choice. This preparation of abstracts, subject to my father's censorship, was of great service to me, by compelling precision in conceiving and expressing psychological doctrines. Whether accepted as truths or not, regarded as the opinion of others. After Helvidicus, my father made me study what he deemed the really master production in the philosophy of mind, Hartley's Observations on Man. This book, though it did not, like Traité de Legislation, give a new color to my existence, made a very similar impression on me in regard to its immediate subject. Hartley's explanation, incomplete as in many points it is, of the more complex moral phenomenon by the law of association, commended itself to me at once as a real analysis, and made me feel by contrast the insufficiency of the merely verbal generalizations of Condillac, and even of the instructive groupings and feelings about for psychological explanations of Locke. 
It was at this very time that my father commenced writing his analysis of the mind, which carried Hartley's mode of explaining the mental phenomenon to so much greater length and depth. He could only command the concentration of thought necessary for this work during the complete leisure of his holiday for a month or six weeks annually, and he commenced it in the summer of 1822. In the first holiday he passed at Dorking, in which neighborhood from that time to the end of his life, with the exception of two years, he lived as far as his official duties permitted, for six months of every year. He worked at the analysis during several successive vacations, up to the year 1829, when it was published, and allowed me to read the manuscript portion by portion as it advanced. The other principal English writers on mental philosophy I read as I felt inclined, particularly Berkeley, Hume's Essays, Reed, Dougal Stewart, and Brown on Cause and Effect. Brown's lectures I did not read until two or three years later, nor at the time had my father himself read them. Among the works read in the course of this year, which contributed materially to my development, I owe it to mention a book written on the foundation of some of Bentham's manuscripts and published under the pseudonym of Philip Beauchamp, entitled Analysis of the Influence of Natural Religion on the Temporal Happiness of Mankind. This was an examination not of the truth, but of the usefulness of religious belief, in the most general sense, apart from the particularities of any special revelation, which, of all the parts of the discussion concerning religion is the most important in this age, in which real belief in any religious doctrine is feeble and precarious, but the opinion of its necessity for moral and social purposes almost universal, and when those who reject revelation very generally take refuge in an optimistic deism, a worship of the order of nature, and the supposed course of providence at least as full of contradiction and perverting to the moral sentiments as any of the forms of christianity if only it is as completely realized yet very little with any claim to a philosophical character has been written by skeptics against the usefulness of this form of belief the volume bearing the name of philip beauchamp had this for its special object Having been shown to my father in manuscript, it was put into my hands by him, and I made a marginal analysis of it, as I had done of the elements of political economy. Next to the Tracte de Legislation, it was one of the books which, by the searching character of its analysis, produced the greatest effect upon me. On reading it lately, after an interval of many years, I find it to have some of the defects, as well as the merits, of the benthonic modes of thought, and to contain, as I now think, many weak arguments, but with a great overbalance of sound ones, and much good material, for a more completely philosophic and conclusive treatment of the subject. I have now, I believe, mentioned all the books which had any considerable effect on my early mental development. From this point I began to carry on my intellectual cultivation by writing still more than reading. In the summer of 1822, I wrote my first argumentative essay. I remember very little about it, except that it was an attack on what I regarded 
as the aristocratic prejudice that the rich were or were likely to be superior in moral qualities to the poor my performance was entirely argumentative without any of the declamation which the subject would admit of and might be expected to support to a young writer in that department however i was and remained very inept dry argument was the only thing i could manage or willingly attempt though passively i was very susceptible to the effect of all composition whether in the form of poetry or oratory which appealed to the feelings on any basis of reason my father who knew nothing of this essay until it was finished was well satisfied and as i learnt from others even pleased with it but perhaps from a desire to promote the exercise of other mental facilities than the purely logical he advised me to take my next exercise in composition one of the oratorial kind on which suggestion availing myself with my familiarity with greek history and ideas and with the athenian orators i wrote two speeches one an accusation the other a defence of pericles on a supposed impeachment for not marching out to fight the lacedaemonians on their invasion of attica after this i continued to write papers on subjects often very much beyond my capacity but with great benefit both from the exercise itself and from the discussions which it led to with my father i had also to converse on great subjects with the instructed men with whom i came in contact and the opportunities of such contact naturally became more numerous the two friends of my father from whom i derived most and with whom i most associated were mr grote and mr john austin the acquaintance of both with my father was recent but had ripened rapidly into intimacy mr grote was introduced to my father by mr ricardo i think in eighteen nineteen being then about twenty-five years old and sought assiduously his society and conversation already a highly instructed man he was yet by the side of my father a tyro in the general subjects of human opinion but he rapidly seized upon my father's best ideas and in the department of political opinion he made himself known as early as eighteen twenty by a pamphlet in defence of radical reform in reply to a celebrated article by sir james mackintosh then lately published in the edinburgh review mr grote's father the banker was i believe a thorough tory and his mother intensely evangelical so that for his liberal opinions he was in no way indebted to home influences but unlike most persons who have the prospect of being rich by inheritance he had though actively engaged in the business of banking devoted a great portion of time to philosophic studies and his intimacy with my father did much to decide the character of the next stage in his mental progress him i often visited and my conversations with him on politics moral and philosophical subjects gave me in addition to much valuable instruction all the pleasure and benefit of sympathetic communion with a man of the high intellectual and moral experience which his life and writings have since manifested into the world end of chapter three last stage of education and first of self-education part one recorded by
Gary Gilbert. Chapter 3, Part 2 Autobiography This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert Autobiography by John Stuart Mill Chapter 3, Last Stage of Education and First of Self-Education Part 2. Mr. Austin, who was four or five years older than Mr. Grote, was the eldest son of a retired miller in Suffolk, who had made money by contracts during the war, and who must have been a man of remarkable qualities, as I infer from the fact that all his sons were of more than common ability, and all eminently gentlemen. The one with whom we are now concerned, and whose writings on jurisprudence have made him celebrated, was for some time in the army, and served in Sicily under Lord William Bentinck. After the peace he sold his commission and studied for the bar, to which he had been called for some time before my father knew him. He was not, like Mr. Grote, to any extent a pupil of my father, but he had attained, by reading and thought, a considerable number of the same opinions, modified by his own very decided individuality of character. He was a man of great intellectual powers, which in conversation appeared at their very best. From the vigor and richness of expression with which, under the excitement of discussion, he was accustomed to maintain some view or other of most general subjects, and from an appearance of not only strong but deliberate and collected will, mixed with a certain bitterness, partly delivered from temperament, and partly from the general cast of his feelings and reflections. The dissatisfaction with life in the world felt more or less in the present state of society and intellect, by every discerning and highly conscientious mind, gave in his case a rather melancholy tinge to the character, very naturally to those whose passive moral susceptibilities are more than proportioned to their active energies. For it must be said that the strength of will of which his manner seemed to give such strong assurance expended itself principally in manner, with great zeal for human improvement, a strong sense of duty, and capabilities and acquirements the extent of which is proved by the writings he has left. He hardly ever completed any intellectual task of magnitude. He had so high a standard of what ought to be done, so exaggerated a sense of deficiencies in his own performances, and was so unable to content himself with the amount of elaboration sufficient for the occasion and the purpose, that he not only spoilt much of his work for ordinary use by over-laboring it, but spent so much time and exertion in superfluous study and thought, that when his task ought to have been completed, he had generally worked himself into an illness without having half finished what he undertook. For this mental infirmity, of which he is not the sole example among the accomplished and the able men whom I have known, combined with liability to frequent attacks of disabling, though not dangerous, ill-health, he accomplished, through life, little in comparison with what he seemed capable of, but what he did produce is held in the very highest estimation by the most competent judges, and, like Coleridge, 
he might plead as a set-off that he had been to many persons through his conversation a source not only of much instruction but of great elevation of character on me his influence was most salutary it was moral in the best sense he took a sincere and kind interest in me far beyond what could have been expected towards a mere youth from a man of his age standing and what seemed austerity of character there was in his conversation and demeanour a tone of high-mindedness which did not show itself so much if the quality existed as much in any of the other persons with whom at that time i associated my intercourse with him was the more beneficial owing to his being of a different mental type from all other intellectual men whom i frequented and he from the first set himself decidedly against the prejudices and narrownesses which are almost sure to be found in a young man formed by a particular mode of thought or a particular social circle his younger brother charles austin of whom at this time and for the next year or two i saw much had also a great effect on me though of a very different description he was but a few years older than myself and had then just left the university where he had shown with great eclat as a man of intellect as a brilliant orator and converser the effect he produced on his cambridge contemporaries deserves to be accounted an historical event for it may in part be traced the tendency toward liberalism in general and the bethantic and politico-economic form of it in particular which showed itself in a portion of the more active-minded young men of the higher classes from this time to eighteen thirty the union debating society at that time at the height of its reputation was an arena where what were then thought extreme opinions in politics and philosophy were weakly asserted face to face with their opposites before audiences consisting of the elite of the cambridge youth and though many persons afterwards of more or less note of whom lord macaulay is the most celebrated gained their first oratorical laurels in those debates the really influential mind among these intellectual gladiators was charles austin he continued after leaving the university to be by his conversation and personal ascendancy a leader among the same class of young men who had been his associates there and he attached me among others to his car through him i became acquainted with macaulay hyde and charles villeners strutt now lord belper romley now lord romley and master of the rolls and various others who subsequently figured in literature or politics and among whom i heard discussions on many topics as yet to a certain degree new to me the influence of charles austin over me differed from that of the persons i have hitherto mentioned in being not the influence of a man over a boy but that of an elder contemporary it was through him that i first felt myself not a pupil under teachers but a man among men he was the first person of intellect whom i met on a ground of equality though as yet much his inferior on that common ground he was a man who never failed to impress greatly those with whom he came in contact even when their opinions were the very reverse of his the impression he gave was that of boundless strength together with talents which combined with such apparent force of will and character 
seemed capable of dominating the world. Those who knew him, whether friendly to him or not, always anticipated that he would play a conspicuous part in public life. It is seldom that men produce so great an immediate effect by speech, unless they in some degree lay themselves out for it, and he did this in no ordinary degree. He loved to strike, and even to startle. He knew that decision is the greatest element of effect, and he uttered his opinions with all the decision he could throw into them, never so well pleased as when he astonished anyone by their audacity. Very unlike his brother, who made war against the narrow interpretations and applications of the principles they both professed, he, on the contrary, presented the Bethanic doctrines in the most startling form of which they were susceptible, exaggerating everything in them which tended to consequences offensive to any one's preconceived feelings, all which he defended with such verve and vivacity, and carried off by a manner so agreeable as well as forcible, that he always either came off victor or divided the honors of the field. It is my belief that much of the notion popularly entertained of the tenets and sentiments of what are called Benthamites, or utilitarians, had its origin in paradoxes thrown out by Charles Austin. It must be said, however, that his example was followed, haud passibus by younger proselytes, and that to auteur, whatever was by any one considered offensive in the doctrines and maxims of Benthamism, became at one time the badge of a small courtier of use. All of these who had anything in them, myself among others, quickly outgrew this boyish vanity. But those who had not became tired of differing from other people, and gave up both the good and the bad part of the heterodox opinions they had for some time professed. It was in the winter of 1822-3 that I formed the plan of a little society to be composed of young men agreeing in fundamental principles, acknowledging utility as their standard in ethics and politics, and a certain number of the principal corollaries drawn from it in the philosophy I had accepted, and meeting once a fortnight to read essays and discuss questions comfortably to the premises thus agreed on. The fact would hardly be worth mentioning, but for the circumstance that the name I gave to the society I had planned was the Utilitarian Society. It was the first time that anyone had taken the title of utilitarian, and the term made its way into the language, from this humble source. I did not invent the word, but found it in one of Galt's novels, The Annals of the Parish, in which the Scottish clergyman, for whom the book is a supposed autobiography, is represented as warning his parishioners not to leave the gospel and become utilitarians. With a boy's fondness for a name and a banner, I seized on the word, and for some years called myself and others by it, as a sectarian appellation, and it came to be occasionally used by some others holding the opinions which I was intended to designate. As those opinions attracted more notice, the term was repeated by strangers and opponents and got into rather common use, just about the time when those who had originally assumed it laid down that along with other sectarian characteristics. The society, so called, consisted at first of no more than three members, one of whom being Mr. Bentham's amanuensis, obtained for us permission to hold our meetings 
in his house. The number never, I think, reached ten, and the society was broken up in 1826. It had thus an existence of about three years and a half. The chief effect of it, as regards myself, over and above the benefit of practice in oral discussion, was that of bringing me in contact with several young men at that time, less advanced than myself, among whom, as they professed the same opinions, I was for some time a sort of leader, and had considerable influence on their mental progress. Any young man of education who fell in my way, and whose opinions were not incompatible with those of the society, I endeavoured to press into its service, and some others I probably should never have known had they not joined it. Those of the members who became my intimate companions, no one of whom was in any sense of the word a disciple, but all of them independent thinkers on their own basis, were William Eaton Tooke, son of the eminent political economist, a young man of singular worth, both moral and intellectual, lost to the world by an early death. His friend, William Ellis, an original thinker in the field of political economy, now honorably known by his apostolic exertions for the improvement of education. Sir George Graham, afterwards official assignee of the bankruptcy court, a thinker of originality and power on almost all abstract subjects, and from the time when he came first to England to study for the bar in 1824 or 1825, a man who has made considerably more noise in the world than any of these, John Arthur Roebuck. In May 1823, my professional occupation and status for the next thirty-five years of my life were decided by my father's obtaining for me an appointment from the East India Company in the office of the Examiner of India Correspondence, immediately under himself. I was appointed in the usual manner at the bottom of the list of clerks, to rise, at least in the first instance, by seniority, but with the understanding that I should be employed from the beginning in preparing drafts of dispatches, and be thus trained up as a successor to those who then filled the higher departments of the office. My drafts, of course, required for some time much revision from my immediate superiors, but I soon became well acquainted with the business and by my father's instructions and the general growth of my own powers, I was in a few years qualified to be, and practically was, the chief conductor of the correspondence with India in one of the leading departments, that of the native states. This continued to be my official duty until I was appointed examiner, only two years before the time when the abolition of the East India Company as a political body determined my retirement. I do not know any one of the occupations by which a subsistence can now be gained more suitable than such as this to any one who, not being in independent circumstances, desires to devote a part of the twenty-four hours to private intellectual pursuits. Writing for the press cannot be recommended as a permanent resource to anyone qualified to accomplish anything in the higher departments of literature or thought not only on account of the uncertainty of this means of livelihood, especially if the writer has a conscience, and will not consent to serve any opinions except his own, but also because the writings by which one can live are not the writings which themselves live, and are never those in which the writer does his best. Books destined to form future thinkers take too much time to write, and when written come, in general, too slowly into notice and repute to be relied upon for sustenance. 
those who have to support themselves by their pen must depend on literary drudgery or at best on writings addressed to the multitude and can employ in the pursuits of their own choice only such time as they can spare from those of necessity which is generally less than the leisure allowed by office occupations while the effect on the mind is far more enervating and fatiguing for my own part i have through life found office duties and actual rest from the other mental occupations which i have carried on simultaneously with them they were sufficiently intellectual not to be a distasteful drudgery without being such as to cause any strain upon the mental powers of a person used to abstract thought or to the labour of careful literary composition the drawbacks for every mode of life has its drawbacks were not however unfelt by me i cared little for the loss of the chances of riches and honours held by some of the professions particularly the bar which had been as i have already said the profession thought of for me but i was not indifferent to exclusion from parliament and public life and i felt very sensibly the more immediate unpleasantness of confinement to london the holiday allowed by india house practice not exceeding a month in the year while my taste was strong for a country life and my sojourn in france had left behind it an ardent desire for travelling but though these tastes could not be freely indulged they were at no time entirely sacrificed i passed most sundays throughout the year in the country taking long rural walks on that day even when residing in london the month's holiday was for a few years passed in my father's house in the country afterwards a part or the whole was spent in tours chiefly pedestrian with one or more of the young men who were my chosen companions and at a later period in longer journeys or excursions alone or with other friends france belgium and rhenish germany were within easy reach of the annual holiday and two longer absences one of three the other of six months under medical advice added switzerland the tyrol and italy to my list fortunately also both these journeys occurred rather early so as to give the benefit and charm of the remembrance to a large portion of my life i am disposed to agree with what has been surmised by others that the opportunity which my official position gave me of learning by personal observation the necessary conditions of the practical conduct of public affairs has been of considerable value to me as a theoretical reformer of the opinions and institutions of my time not indeed that public business transacted on paper to take effect on the other side of the globe was of itself calculated to give much practical knowledge of life but the occupation accustomed me to see and hear the difficulties of every course and the merits of obviating them stated and discussed deliberately with a view to execution it gave me opportunities of perceiving when public measures and other political facts did not produce the effects which had been expected of them and from what causes above all it was valuable to me by making me in this portion of my activity merely one wheel in a machine i should have had no one to consult but myself and should have entered in my speculations none of the obstacles which would have started up whenever they came to be applied to practice but as a secretary conducting political correspondence i could not issue an order or express an opinion 
without satisfying various persons very unlike myself, that the thing was fit to be done. I was thus in a good position for finding out by practice the mode of putting a thought which gives it easiest admittance to minds not prepared for it by habit. While I became particularly conversant with the difficulties of moving bodies of men, the necessities of compromise, the art of sacrificing the non-essential to preserve the essential, I learnt how to obtain the best I could when I could not obtain everything. Instead of being indulgent or dispirited because I could not have entirely my own way, to be pleased and encouraged when I could have the smallest part of it, and when even that could not be, to bear with complete equanimity the being overruled altogether. I have found, through life, these acquisitions to be of the greatest possible importance for personal happiness, and they are also a very necessary condition for enabling anyone, whether as theorist or as practical man, to effect the greater amount of good compatible with his opportunities. End of chapter 3 Last Stages of Education and First of Self-Education Part 2 Recorded by Gary Gilbert